Our Bible reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through to 13. I think Selma is going to come and read that for us. Um, Yes, so Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through to 13. Thanks, Selma. Then Jesus left the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority, because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. So this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at this temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And we find here that Jesus was tempted three times. Uh, He had three different attacks by the devil kind of leveled at him. And the first uh, thing we have to understand is just where this where this happens in, I guess, the bigger picture story and also in the, in the book of Luke. So this event happens uh, right after Jesus' baptism where the Holy Spirit comes down, anoints Jesus, and God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so he, uh, he identifies Jesus. He gives Jesus this kind of identity as, uh, or he affirms Jesus' identity as his son. And so... Um, directly after that, in the text we read that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and is led through the wilderness. And and it really gives us a a kind of a clue uh, of what is going on here. Now, this phrase, he was led, is what we call the divine passive. uh, Silly name. But anyway, it shows us that God is the one who is doing the leading here. So God, through his Spirit, is leading Jesus while he is in the wilderness. And this is significant because it is the same kind of phrase that, that is used of Israel as they are being led out of Egypt. God saves Israel out of Egypt in the same way as Jesus is being led in the wilderness here. And it shows us that, um, that what is about to take place is, that, uh, is, is kind of significant. It ties it into this bigger picture story we've been seeing of, of uh, God rescuing Israel. And now here Christ, being full of the Holy Spirit, is about to start his work as really the true Israelite, the true Israel. 
as the second Adam, as the one who has come to lead God's people out of the wilderness of their sin, out of the land of slavery to sin. And so that's kind of the prologue to the story. And so Jesus is about to start his journey through the desert, being tempted so that he could stand in Israel's place, in the place of God's people. And so how does he do it? Well, he does it by withstanding three tests, by passing three tests, getting through three different temptations. Now, um, the first temptation is, uh, is a temptation for Jesus to deny his identity. It's an attack on his identity. God has just said, you are my son, and now Satan comes and he says to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God. You see, he starts by attacking Jesus' identity as the Son of God. He's trying to get him to doubt God by offering him this food uh, that will sate his hunger. Now, if this sounds familiar, it should. Because we know of another Adam, don't we, who was in the same situation. Did God really say, says the serpent, that you must not eat from any tree? And then what happens? When they saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye, they take some and they ate it. This same tempter who tempted Adam and Eve to doubt God by offering them good food is now tempting Jesus in the same way, to doubt his very identity as the Son of God by offering him good food. But there is a stark contrast here too between what happens in the Garden of Eden and what happens to Jesus. You see, Adam and Eve were not underfed. They weren't hungry, and yet they took the food, whereas Jesus here has been food-deprived for 40 days. One day for every year that Israel was wandering through the wilderness. 40 days of being underfed, and he was famished, and yet... Even in that much stronger, uh, worse temptation, he does not take the food. Instead, what he does is he quotes Deuteronomy 8, verses 3, where, which we also just sang about, that man does not live on bread alone. If you read the whole verse, uh, the whole quotation, um, it, it goes like this in Deuteronomy 8. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. This is God talking... Uh, to Israel. And then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors did not know, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It is actually God's word that sustains us and gives us life. Food may sustain us, but God's words give us life and meaning. And God's word is always true and therefore need not be doubted. And so when God speaks something, even if that thing didn't exist beforehand, it comes into being. The reason, partly, that God cannot lie is when God says something, that thing happens. That's how true God's words are. What he says happens, what he says will happen, happens by the very fact that God speaks it. Kind of in the speaking, it is done. As he, as he speaks the world into creation, it starts existing. And so Jesus counters Satan's attack here on, on his identity by speaking God's truth from the God of truth. 
Satan calls out to Jesus and makes him question, are you really a child of God? If you are the son of God, are you really his son? And Jesus counters that with God's own word. But friends, how often do we actually hear this question in our own lives? Satan is the accuser. He makes us question this very thing. Are you really a daughter of God? Are you really a son of God? He says to us, I mean, look at how you live your life. Look at the wicked things that you've done. Surely a child of God cannot do such things. His attack on our identity is the same. He causes us to doubt by showing us our lives. He says, I mean, really, look at how hypocritical you are. Look at how you break other people down so you can feel better about yourself. Look at how easily you fall to temptation and how quickly you turn to things that give you pleasure when you are stressed or angry or depressed or lonely. You know, don't you, that these things are against God's will? If that's you, the attack comes. How can you call yourself a child of God? How can you call yourself a daughter of the king when you gossip or degrade or break others down? How can you be, call yourself his son when you let the temptation rule you and live such a selfish and self-centered life? How can you claim to be God's child is the question the Prince of Lies tries to tell us. And the problem is when we hear this question often enough, we, we start to believe it. The uh, author of The Never-Ending Story, Michael End, he says this, there is nothing, uh, when it comes to controlling human beings, there is no better instrument than lies. And you know why we start believing this lie that because our life doesn't match up to the perfect uh, picture of Christ, therefore we cannot believe, we start doubting God. The reason we believe this lie isn't because it's an outright lie, it's because it's a half-truth. In fact, there is truth in those questions. We are hypocritical. We do break other people down to make us feel better about ourselves. We do things that go against God's will all the time. We do fail to temptation and we often live self-centered lives. We do, that's true. But the lie is that because these things have characterized your life, you cannot be a child of God. That's the lie part. And that lie sounds true because it makes sense. It's, it's a kind of internal logic to it. The people of God surely don't do those sorts of things. That's a logical question. And... And perhaps it would have been true if it were not for Jesus. You know, if it weren't for Jesus, our hypocrisy, our sin, our, all the things we do wrong would mean that we could not possibly be children of God. Because we ultimately act out of our identity. Who we are defines what we do. But Christ comes and changes that. You see, our identity as children of God is not dependent on our ability to keep God's law. It's not dependent on whether or not we perfectly obey all the things in this life that God gives us to do. We, we actually can't do that. In fact, without Christ, we can't even do any of that. 
The great um, uh, Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, said, The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary. And if our sonship or our daughtership uh, as children of God was dependent on how we lived our lives, all of us would fail. But thanks be to God that that is not the case. Whether you are a child of God depends entirely on Jesus' work on the cross, on his resurrection from the dead. It is, that is his truth. That is the truth. And so Jesus counters this lie, you know, are you really the son of God, by speaking that truth to Satan. And it is that same kind of truth that we are the children of God because of what Jesus has done on the cross that ultimately changes how we to live our lives. And the more and more we live in that identity as the children of God, the more and more we will live a life that looks like Jesus' life. And so if you trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, that is who you are. And as you come through His Holy Spirit to live more and more like Him, that is also who you will become. Christ is who you will in some way become. And so that's how Jesus answers this first attack on his identity. The second attack is an attack of instant gratification. And so in verse 5, so, so Satan takes him up and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. And if you then will worship me, all of this will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so having failed the first uh, attack, the devil tries the second one. And this one is a little bit more insidious than the first. So he takes Jesus to this high place. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Now we don't quite understand how that works, whether they went to space and somehow did a divine space suit or something. We don't understand how that works. But he does say that I have, Satan says, I have the authority to give you all of this because it is mine to give. Now, we need to pause here for a second and just think about that. Because how can Satan say this? Do all the kingdoms of the world actually belong to him at this point? What do you think? Hands up for yes. Well, the two of you are correct. Uh, actually, at this point, I think Satan can promise this. He, in this space, has the authority over the kingdoms of the world. How did he get that? How can he offer this to Jesus? Because Adam gave it to him. In his sin, Adam gives authority over the world, over earth, to Satan. So the way I understand this is that God makes the universe and earth and he puts Adam in charge of the earth, right? He is the, the kind of the head of the earth. And then by sinning, Adam gives away his authority over the earth and he hands it over to the tempter, to Satan. And the reason why sin affects, um, and the, a part of the reason for, the, for why sin affects not only human being is that, but actually all of creation, is that the whole domain of the earth was under the headship of Adam being under the headship of God. And so when Adam sins, everything under his authority 
suffers the same consequence. Even to the point where the Bible says that the whole earth, all of creation, groans under the weight of sin. And so this authority at the time of Jesus' temptation actually lives with Satan. It resides with him. He does, in fact, have the right to offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. But what I find perhaps even more remarkable is that, uh, about these few verses is that Satan actually offers Jesus a way to accomplish his mission on earth without going through the cross. He gives Jesus a shortcut of achieving his purposes here on earth. He says, I have all this authority and I can give it to you. And partly that is what Jesus came for. To wrestle back authority from Satan over the earth. And ultimately Jesus wins. So we know that from Matthew 29 where Jesus gives this great commission of making disciples. What does he say there? He says, all authority in heaven and now that he's died and come back to life and risen again and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples. So Jesus comes partly to claim back authority over the earth. And he actually needs the authority over the nations in order to spread the kingdom, in order for people to go and make disciples of the world. In essence, Jesus could not have commissioned his followers to make disciples of all nations if he had no right over the nations. And here, Satan is offering him exactly that. Take it. Take the authority you want. No need to go to the cross or suffer that separation from God. No need to take the sin of the world on your shoulders or die under God's penalty for sin. You don't need that, Jesus. I will give you what you came for if only you will worship me. Kind of instant gratification. If only you will bow down to me, Satan says. You can have all of this. What a temptation that would have been. Just settle for the authority over the earth, Jesus. You can have it. You just have to deny who you are and how the universe works. There's a great Christian philosopher, his name is Thomas Merton, and he says that the biggest human temptation is to settle for too little. It would have been a great temptation for Jesus here to settle for too little, to settle only for the authority over earth. And yet if Jesus had done that, he would have been derailed from his purpose. He knew that even if he had the authority over the kingdoms of the world, he probably couldn't do anything with that authority. He had to go to the cross in order to, uh, to save people. He had to suffer the separation from God uh, in order to take the sin of, the, of, of his people on his shoulders. He had to die under God's wrath for sin so that he could save sinners. He had to do these things so that he could do something with the authority over the kingdoms of the world, to save them, to regenerate them, to restore them, and to save the people in them. And in order for that to happen, Jesus had to go through that process of dying and, and being restored back to life. And no authority over the kingdoms would have given him the ability to actually die for you and me and to save us from our sin. 
And that's part of the key to understanding the rest of the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Satan could only offer him the authority on earth. But in worshipping Satan, Jesus would have lost his heavenly authority. The authority to forgive sin and set sinners free. To heal the sick and give life to the dead. Satan could offer him none of that. And so he had to go to the cross. Jesus did not fall for the trap of settling for too little. But I think sometimes we do. Sometimes we settle for this instant gratification. How easy it is for us to fall for the I will give you all the pleasures or satisfaction you want if only you will worship me type thinking. How often we settle for the incomplete thing because we don't want to go through what it takes to get the whole thing. Sometimes we settle for a kind of apathy because we think it's just too hard in the church to introduce others to God. It's too hard to share our faith with others. And so, you know, we, we, we settle for just coming, coming to church on a Sunday and that being our, the entirety of our religious life. We're happy to settle for things just as they are because someone else can do that mission work stuff. And we miss out, actually, on the joy, the true abundant joy of seeing a non-believing person finally come to Jesus who did not take shortcuts. Sometimes we settle for a God who doesn't really care about the way we act in this earth, a kind of divine clockmaker, if you will, who, who winds up the clock of eternity and now is just letting it run down. Or we settle for a, for a kind of powerless prayer, an inconsequential life, a, a weak and comfortable church. Or we settle for a Jesus who simply affirms us the way we are. And he says, I will love you, whoever you are, which is true, but who then doesn't ever challenge us to change our lives to, uh, as he is the Lord of our lives. Who only ever expresses his love for us, but never spurs us into action. Maybe we sometimes settle for a Christ like that. We fall for this temptation of settling for too little. But Jesus says in John chapter 10, uh, all who came before me, so all the other messiahs, all the other saving people are thieves and robbers and my sheep won't listen to them. The thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy, but I have come so that my sheep may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus came so that we, as part of his flock, could have a full life. Not a second best life, not a leftovers life, not a op shop life, if you will, but a life to the full. If only we would not settle for second best. And we can leave all these other things behind us because Jesus did away with them. We, we actually can leave behind our religious apathy and find our purpose in Christ and serve him with a full life because he gave his life for us. We can leave behind the idea that God doesn't really care, uh, you know, kind of like a clock worker that winds up the clock. 
when we see that God is actually a passionate God, a jealous God. He wants to know you. He wants your prayers. He wants a relationship with you. So much so that he is willing through Jesus to come and die in order to make that possible. God wants to know you and wants you to know him. So my friends, don't settle for a second best God, a instant gratification Jesus, a kind of fake and pale imitation of who the Bible teaches us they are. Don't settle for a God that doesn't actually exist. Because Jesus did not settle for a second best kind of salvation. So that's the second thing I wanted us to look at. And then just briefly, I want to look at this um, last attack, the idols of the heart. And so verse 9, He took him to Jerusalem, he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, what is going on here? Satan, the devil, changes tactics once more. The first temptation was to get Jesus to doubt his identity. The second temptation was for Jesus kind of to doubt his purpose and, and his plan. And in both cases, um, Jesus replies with Scripture. He says, the Bible says this, so I'm not going to do that. And then Satan says, okay, well, fine, I can do that too. I can quote Scripture to you as well. And so he quotes Psalm 191, verses 11 and 12. Now, his purpose is to get Jesus to place himself above God, to make God the Father his servant, uh, and uh, arbitrarily forcing God to send his angels to protect him. Now, friends, if ever there was a case for quoting Scripture in context, this passage would be it. Because, you see, what the devil here does is he quotes Scripture in order to get his way out of context. And so he misses out a few words in Scripture. Just here and there, he, he drops a few. Now, I want us to look at Psalm 91, this section where this comes from, just in a little bit more detail. So, this is the quotation the devil gives him. Because you have made the Lord, my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place, no harm will come to you, no plague will come near your tent. For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra and you will trample the young lion and the serpent. Now that is the context. Now if you have been following along with the story, you will realize that verse 13, which the devil conveniently forgets about, is a highly significant statement. You see, Satan wants Jesus to act kind of rashly, like a spoiled child. And he does so by basing it on Scripture. Except that he quotes, uh, that, that the text Satan quotes says, If you say, the Lord is my refuge. And he conveniently ignores verse 13, where the psalm, referring to the Messiah, Jesus himself, says, you will trample and crush the serpent. But of course, Jesus will have none of it. He simply replies, it is written, don't put God to the test. 
And I think it's kind of interesting that Jesus doesn't actually correct Satan because, in fact, if Jesus were to jump off the temple, he had all the armies of heaven to catch him if he wanted that. But it shows us that the heart, the reason behind doing something, is what makes it kind of sinful. You see, if Jesus were pushed or he fell or something, the angels could have caught him and that would be fine. But if Jesus had jumped off in order to force God to act on his behalf, he would have sinned and he would have failed the test. And in both cases, the action was the same. Jesus falls to earth, the angels come and protect him, but the heart of, the, of why we do something actually matters. And here Satan attacks Jesus' heart by twisting God's word. But thankfully our Lord stands firm and would not accept the temptation. You see, Satan here tempts Jesus to prove himself. But it wasn't necessary because Jesus had nothing to prove. He was God's son. He didn't need to prove that to anyone, especially not through a foolish little act like jumping off the temple roof, where everyone could have seen the miracle that would have settled the question of who Jesus really was once and for all. But Jesus didn't come to be recognized by men or angels or demons. He came to do a job, the job of verse 13 in the psalm, to crush the head of the serpent. And so in verse 13, after failing all his attacks, the devil finished all his tempting and leaves him uh, until an opportune time, the NIV says. And the next time Jesus is tempted to leave his post, to get derailed from his purpose, to doubt his identity, is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before the crucifixion. And he cries out, Father, if there's any other way, let me have that way. But not my will, but yours be done. And so as a lamb being led to the slaughter, he goes to the cross to die. Now, Jesus was a man who did not test God. He refused to play these games with Satan because he knew his purpose. He knew who he was and he had a plan to live out his purpose. He came to seek and save the lost so that we could find our identity based on him so that we could worship him not as a kind of instant gratification, Jesus, but as he really is the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And the more, friends, we trust in that, the more that forms the core of our identity, the more we will live for him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter into your presence through prayer now, we pray that you will help us to see just the magnificent way in which you defeated every attack of Satan. And in seeing that, Lord, we pray that you will give us a heart to do the same. Help us to understand that our identity is found in you only, Lord. Help us to know that the core of who we are is uh, who you call us to be, who you made us to be as your children. Lord, thank you that we can be called sons and daughters of, of God, that you are our brother and that you have purchased us 
with your blood on the cross. And as we remember that this morning in the Lord's Supper, and we hear now that again uh, here in the preaching of your word, we pray that you will take that truth, plant it deep in us, and that that will be the identity from which we live our lives. We pray that you will help us to turn our eyes always to Jesus and to live for him alone. We pray this in your name only. Amen.